Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 22. What if you could read someone's personality the minute you meet them? Imagine the effect it'd have on your ability to connect. You'd know how to approach them physically, the tone of the conversation they'd most enjoy, the way they prefer to take in new information and how they make decisions and much, much more. My guest in this episode can do exactly that and he's here to help you learn how as well. Alan Stevens is known as the celebrity profiler. He's Australia's leading personality and business profiler. He is best known for his work on TV and radio when he's asked to read the features and body language of a celebrity to give us an insight into what they're thinking or the nature of their interactions. But it's the work Alan does professionally that gives him the most satisfaction. He helps social workers get to know their clients faster so they can maximise the time they have together. He helps salespeople, parents, teachers, real estate agents and leaders of all types. His goal is to help us all understand ourselves and the people around us so we can form comfortable and effective relationships quickly. He gives us some really simple, practical tips to help us do exactly that. Not only is Alan an expert in micro-expressions and body language, which he describes in the chat you're about to hear, he's also developed a system for reading personality traits from nothing more than a series of photos. So, of course, I put him to the test. Before our interview, I sent him five pictures of me, and you'll hear him use those photos to analyse my inherent character traits. The results are pretty incredible. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the celebrity profiler, Alan Stevens. Stevens, it's so nice to have you on the Team Guru podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Alan, you are known as the celebrity profiler. You're Australia's leading personality and business profiler. You have mastered the art of reading facial expressions and facial features to determine someone's personality. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Well, what it means is being able to recognize, first of all, someone's personality but also being able to understand their emotional states and also being able to recognise their character. When we uh, ask people questions, we often get uh, misleading responses back. They're always wondering what's being asked, etc. So through my journey, I've, we worked in different areas where I really needed to be able to understand people more effectively without having their emotions involved. And I found that uh, looking at facial features, facial features are a history of the way somebody thinks the crevices, the ridges that you create by creating movements over and over again, that that will actually tell me how you've actually thought and processed information. So your facial features will tell me your personality straight away. And then looking at uh, body language and micro-expressions, micro-expressions are little twitches on the face. When somebody first says something to you, you respond unconsciously, and then before the conscious mind can step in, there's a little expression. And that expression tells me exactly what you're feeling at that moment. That's fascinating. So it's not just about the structure of someone's face, the God-given structure. It's also about the wearing and weathering of someone's wrinkles that tells you 
their regular emotional habits and that gives you a great insight into their personality as well. That's right. See, because we have certain traits that are passed down from our parents in the genes. So they are locked in concrete virtually, so to speak. Then we have other traits that we develop in response to our environment. So we go through tough times. We'll frown a lot. We'll put different expressions on our face and that will give a new appearance to our face. And then in any moment, we have the micro expressions that tell me and the body language to tell me exactly what you feel right then and there. Now, what we did in preparation for this conversation that we're having today is about a week ago, I sent you five photographs of me because one of the things that you do is profile people from a series of photos. And later in this episode, we're going to talk about what you learned about me from those five photos. I'll put those pictures on the podcast page for this episode on my website so people can get a sense of what it is that you're reading. And I can't wait to hear what you've got to say about me from just looking at those five pictures. That's a a fascinating concept in itself. But we'll get to that eventually. We'll creep up on it by building a bigger picture, a greater picture of what it is that you do and how you've arrived there. So one thing I'm really interested in is how on earth did you get yourself in a position where you're known as the celebrity profiler, the expert in reading people's faces? I'm sure you didn't decide to do that when you finished high school. No, well, I worked in um, telecom or PMG in the early days, so I was in communications. Through that period of time, I was always thrown at the deep end where I was either the youngest person in charge of older people or being the older person going into an area where younger people have been there for a long time, far more experienced than me. So I always had the challenge of working with people and so looked at different ways of actually connecting with them. So I did what they used to call psychometric profiling, disk programming, Myers-Briggs, those sort of things, where you'd ask people a series of questions. Then at uh, part of my uh, journey, I was actually working with a company who were teaching currency trading and none of their students ever made any money. So they asked me to have a look at why or what was going on. Now, the instructor they had was very good, so everything they learned was pretty much the same. Each person would give you the same details, but when they actually went to trade, they would lose money. They would all trade differently. So it was their psychology, so we needed to understand their psychology. When I asked questions, quite often we got reports back that just didn't correlate to the way they behaved when we started working with them. So I needed something better. And somebody just said to me one day, have you ever looked at reading faces? And I thought, well, that sounds interesting because that would take my emotions out of it. It would take their emotions out of it as well. And I could see them as they truly are based on the dimensions of their face. And that's how it all started. Now, you mentioned those other types of assessments. And you and I have had a conversation before. We're both MBTI practitioners and and Mm. we value that assessment greatly. Mm. You've also mentioned DISC and there's Herman Brain dominant indicator. And that's all very interesting. And I use those tools a lot and I I value them greatly. But you pointed out to me and, and you were right to point out the fact that when you meet someone, you don't have an opportunity to run them through an MBTI profile. You don't get that advantage. You know, if you, if you do know their profile, you know where they get their energy. Are, are they an introvert or an extrovert? Are they big picture or detailed focus? Are they rational or emotional? Are they a judger? They like things to be locked in and decided? Or are they perceiver? They, they like open-ended possibilities. You can tell all those things through an MBTI profile. But of course, when you first meet someone, you don't have the opportunity to do that. So you've developed this system of reading someone's face that will give you almost that same information. Is that correct? It gives me that information even more because when we look at with those different codes, we're putting people into a smaller number of boxes. 
I'm looking at 68 traits in the face and the body, which means there's over two with 27 other characters after it. So that's a lot of combinations. But what I look at, what stands out the most in someone's face the first, and then add and moderate with other traits. So each trait will add to the picture in one way or another. And it allows me to take the person out of putting them into a category and see them as an individual. But it also means I'm not restricted by language, age, sex, culture, or any of those uh, barriers. And if somebody walks past me, I can profile them without asking a single question. And that's where the real advantage comes in. So, Alan, that must be a heavy cross to bear. The fact that everyone that you meet, everyone that you walk past, you get this window into their soul. Well, what I'm actually getting is it's really great because I can see them as they really are, which means when I start to speak to them, I can have a great relationship with them. This is not done to actually try and have dominion over somebody or control them. It's about how can I actually connect with them better. If I can look at somebody and straight away know that, well, every trade has an upside and every trade has a downside. When we usually go into a group and we're talking to people, we try and project that persona that we want other people to see. So that really high level one. But quite often, especially these days, a lot of people with self-esteem issues, we feel a different level altogether. So there's that one that we don't want people to see. And a lot of people are worried about that one being seen. But I'm seeing both. I'm seeing the upside and I'm seeing the downside. So in that instance, I'm generally seeing that person better than they see themselves. So as soon as we start talking, I can make a better connection with them straight away. And because they're now able to see themselves in a different light, they're able to see their future and everything else instantaneously completely better than what they did before. So it's what I... No, go ahead, sorry. It's what I call, instead of doing um, therapy with people and trying to work them through things, it's an immediate solution because as soon as they see themselves in a different light, their whole attitude changes. Now, what kind of effect does that have on you as a person professionally in in relationships? Does it give you a, a really rich bond with most people you meet or do you selectively flex this muscle? Once you start reading people, you just can't help it. You're always reading people. And when you know that you work with somebody, they've really got something great out of it, and that warm feeling you get, why would I want to turn it off? I'm a greedy side. I like to really (laughs) enjoy life. And the more I can read people, the more I get that uh, response back from them, great uh, friendships and everything else, people I may not have liked before simply because their personalities were opposite to mine. Now I can see the value that their personality traits have got. I might not want to go on holidays with them or go to the pub on the Friday night, but I'm really glad if I'm working with them that they're there because they're doing the stuff that I don't want to do and they're happy for me to pass that work to them. So we have great teams in that situation. You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Before, when we were comparing what you do to something like MBTI or DISC, you mentioned the 68 traits that you're reading. And I think that might have scared my listeners because what we always try and get out of interviews on the Team Guru podcast is actionable pieces of juicy information that we can take away and use in our own lives. And none of us out of this conversation are going to learn in depth 68 traits. So do you think that Is there a way that you can share some really basic concepts with us so without your level of expertise, we can walk away from this conversation with a couple of tricks up our sleeve that will help us read people a little better? Yes. The first thing that we do when we look at anybody is the first things we notice is the height of the eyebrows, the width of the eyes, for instance, the uh, width of the face. Now, 
when you first meet somebody who's got high set eyebrows, for instance, these are people who are more discerning. They like more space. So when you walk, if, there'll be times when you've walked up to people and you've stood there next to them and they've moved away from you because you yourself are quite affable. You're quite happy to stand that close to people. So they will move away and you think, oh, well, they don't like me. What you've actually done is invaded their space. They're just a bit more discerning. They like to check out who's around and work out who they want to actually speak to and who they don't want to speak to. If they like you, they'll just they'll be as friendly as anybody else. They'll step in, they'll come closer to you. This is why I incorporate the body language and the micro-expressions with it as well. So once I've read the trait, the other unconscious indicators of the way, their behaviour tell me whether I've got that rapport with them or not. If someone's got very low set eyebrows, they will stand very close to you. Right. So if you're somebody who has high set eyebrows and you like that space and you're trying to make a connection with that person, then instead of facing directly to them where you've got limited space and you're feeling uncomfortable, turn your body sideways a little bit so you've got that open area to your side like an escape route or smile or change the colour of your clothing so you're a little bit brighter and that person will feel that you're a bit warmer. I could rush off and change my shirt, hey? So high eyebrows means they're discerning. They want a little bit more space. Once they get to know me in the situation, they're happy to move closer if they like what they get to know. Someone with low eyebrows is okay to be a little bit closer immediately. Right. That's great. That's That's, that's really, I can really apply that. That's that's handy information, Alan. What else have you got for us, mate? That's a good one. Well, if you've also got the, uh, the closeness of the eyes, for instance, those that are very close together, and what you're looking at, the way I measure the width of the eye, if you look at the, the white section of the eye from the inside edge to the outside edge and then look at that space between the eyes, would it be tight? Would it be loose? Would it just fit in? Those that are close together, these are people who are more serious about things, more focused. If uh, you had a colleague who was working away, who has close set eyes and you can see that they're doing something that's quite uh, stressful to them or if they're wrapped up in it, you wouldn't go over and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, come over here and give me a hand right away because they're going to feel like you don't recognise that what they're doing is important. They feel disrespected. They're going to be feeling disloyal towards you. If you do force them or direct them to come and help you, their body will come but their mind will stay with the problem they're right. working on. Getcha. But you would say to them, look, if you had uh, – I know you're doing something really uh, important here. It's taking your time up. I've got a problem over here and I need your help. How much time do you need to get that to a level to where you can leave it long enough to come and give me a hand? Would five or ten minutes be okay? Right. So you virtually make a negotiation with them on the timing. Then if they said five minutes, you go back in six. So you don't un- undercut it. They will come over there and more likely bring their mind with them. The wide set eyed person, though, is like, oh, thank God, yeah, I want to get away from what I'm doing. I'll come and help you. I was going so, to ask if the inverse is necessarily true. So close eyes means they're serious. They're, they're, they're very they're, focused. They're going to be irritated if you drag them away from something they're focused on. So my next question, and you started to cover it, wide set eyes is the opposite. They're not so serious and they're, they're looking to be interrupted. Is that fair to say? They're easily distracted, so to speak. It's like, okay, if they're under stress, they don't really want to be working on the stress. So if they can get a distraction to go and do something else, it lets them to escape from it. Whereas a close-set eye person cannot leave it alone. They've got to get it done. All right. That's great stuff. So we have gone no further than the eyes, the, the eyebrows and the eyes, and I've already learned a lot about the person I'm talking to. What else can I look out for when I first meet someone? Okay. Well, one of the things is the exposure of the eyelids. Now, 
what you'll actually have on some people's eyes is a little fold of skin that sits on the eyelash itself. On others, like yourself, there is no fold there. It's exposed. So exposed uh, eyelids are people who just want the big picture. How many times have people come up to you, started talking to you, you're interested in what they were saying, and then after they kept on talking, you've gone shark eyes, you've gone, you've let me out of here. Right. There's too much information. Just give me the big picture. Yeah. So there are people who just want that. Then there are people who need all the detail. So they want to analyze everything. They can't make a decision until until they've analyzed it. And they're the people that have the fold on their eyelids. Is that correct? That's right. The actual looks like the skin is sitting when it comes over the actual eyelid itself. So if you meet someone like that, give them the detail. And then if they're interested, work up to the big picture. Yeah, what you'd actually do is I generally give the big picture anyway, but go into the details. So when I'm going to somebody who needs all the information, I'll start talking about it. I'll tell them how things are connected together, but then go drill down on each item. Right. If it's the big picture, I will just say to the person, look, I'll give you the big picture and that allow you to ask the questions that you need to ask after that. If there is information I have to give them, say it's a financial document or something like that, I have to explain certain things, and I know they're big picture, I'll actually say to them, look, I know that you're a big picture person. I just want to give you all the details, but there is some stuff that we have to go through. Right. When should I get to that? Then I'll let you know what that is. Then when we go through the discussion, I get to those bits, I go, remember what I said before about the real boring bits we had to go through? Here they are. Okay. So have a bit of a giggle, get them on side, go through that bit. They know it's only going to just be that. The rest of it is not going to go through all that information. All right. And so you have identified me, and we're going to talk about me in a little bit more detail later, but you mentioned that. So you see my eyes and read that I'm a big picture person. That's right. And my wife will probably agree with you. If she comes to me with some detail or if you've got to make this choice or that choice, We've learned through our relationship, I, I outsource all of those decisions. She, I don't want to even hear about it. So I think that fits pretty nicely. Okay, we're still on the eyes and I've learned so much about this person already. Tell me more, Alan. This is fantastic. Yeah, well, the, um, look, what I also look at is, okay, you want the big picture, but I also know that you make your decisions very quickly as well. What I'm looking at there, this is in the length of the face and in relationship to the the section from the base of the nose to the chin in relationship to the overall length. Those that have uh, that larger, lower part of the face, these are people who want to make their decisions quickly. They just want one way, the best way to do it. Just give me the way I should do it. Let me get on with it. It's a trait you would find in a paramedic, somebody who's been really well trained and trained at speed. So cars upside down, on fire, they react fast and get the person out. Right. Whereas the opposite, which is a little bit more like myself, where that area is a bit smaller, it's what I call a mental motive. It's somebody who's motivated by the mental processes, the thoughts. So I look for all the possibilities, and then from that I will then select it. Now, that's a trait you would want in, say, a surgeon who's trying to figure out whether he or she is going to open you up or not. You want to look at all the different alternatives. So when I'm looking at traits, I'm quite often looking at the traits that or the the functions and behaviours of the person that they enjoy and then from there being able to link that to hobby sports and careers that would suit them. All right, so I've got a large distance between the base of my nose and my chin and I'm aware of that. I've got a very big chin, so I think that contributes a lot and that means that I I like to make quick decisions and this is where I get really interested in what the critics of your work might have to say. You mentioned that, say, a good paramedic or ambulance driver would have those same features as me. But is that to say that there are no good paramedics out there who have features like you, the small space between nose and chin? 
What it really means is that if you have a – every trait that we have has an area that's going to be best in. It's like if I see a music trait in a person, it means that they have a gift for music. It doesn't mean other people can't become good musicians. Those other people just have to practice harder. Getcha. The ones that have the actual uh, particular trait, they just gravitate to it easier. Easier. It's something that they've just got a natural gift for. Okay. So somebody who has the physical motive can react that way, you know, would like to react very quickly. Mm-hmm. If I then change that role to where you were, say, in the, the surgeon, for instance, you would then have to pull yourself back a little bit from moving forward too fast. So you'd have to think about it. So you might be a little bit more uncomfortable in that role. So in MBTI terms, you're talking about acting out of trait there, and we can all do that in the same Mm. way that we can all write with our opposite hand. We just don't do it as well or as naturally. And if we're to do that, it burns a lot more energy. Is that the same with these concepts that you're talking about? Exactly. Pretty much the same. Because at the end of the day, we are more productive when we're doing things that we love to do. Right. And if we're doing that, then we're working for somebody, we're more productive for that organisation as well. It's not about pandering people and wrapping them up in cotton wool. It's putting them in roles where they, they function well, where they're doing the stuff that they love to do. They're more productive. They're more loyal. They'll stay in the careers longer. The organisation makes more money and people just get on better as teams. It's very much about that strength kind of concept, isn't it? We can all learn things, but if we invest time and energy into the things that we're naturally good at already, we're going to get a lot more bang for our buck as it were, investing in things that come to us more naturally. So I get that. That's pretty clear to me. Okay, well, what else have you got for me, mate? I've got to say you've given us four tips so far, and they're all very tangible. I can imagine using these. Yeah, when you look at the uh, one that's very obvious is the width of the face. Right. When a face is either wide or narrow, all the research that's been done on it, when we look at faces that are wider, they just look more confident. It's the way we feel when we look at them. But it's also been found that those people act more confidently as well. So the wider the face, the more confident the person. So what I call it is uh, an innate self-confidence for the wide face. And for the narrow face, it's what I call builds confidence. And what it comes down to is that people who have the narrow face, they'll take longer to learn things because they'll go out and they'll practice it, they'll test it. It's like when I did my uh, massage therapy course many, many years ago, I knew some of the people who had the wider faces. They, we finished the course. They already had their rooms booked. They had clients booked in for the next week. They were ready to run. But in my case, I went away and practiced, got a few mates and everything else, tested it, looked at whether I needed aromatherapies and other what else I needed to learn, whether it's another style of massage. So people who have that narrow face will take longer to get there. But once they got there, the upside of the trade is they know their stuff because yes. they've researched it inside and out. Right. Whereas a wide-faced person will walk up straight away, think they've got it, and you don't know whether they've got it until they're put to the test. Now, I used an example to explain this in both directions. That if I had to give a talk and for some reason I couldn't give it, but I had two staff members, both had the same knowledge, neither of them presented before, one's got the narrow face and one's got the wide face, the one I'm going to get to do the presentation with the wide face, they'll be seen by everybody else as more confident, they will feel more confident, they'll come across more confident and the talk will go better. If, however, I'm at a uh, talk where I see two people on stage, one with a wide face, one with a narrow face, they're both talking confidently, the one I'm not going to test to try and catch out is a narrow-faced person. I'm wasting my time because they already know their stuff. They've earned their confidence. That's right. The other one might just feel that they're confident and they're the one that I might be able to trick out by asking particular questions. That's a terrific 
example of application, I was about to ask you, because the others, the first four that you gave us are really easy. I can really see quite easily how you could apply those. That one, I wasn't so sure. So that's a great example. Now, my question here is around putting on weight. If you put on weight, you get a wider face. Does that mean that people see you as being more confident as you put on weight? Now, what we're actually looking for is the the area we're looking at. We're looking at the skeletal structure. Mm-hmm. When we look at the width of the face, we're looking horizontally through the pupils to the outside of the eye sockets. Right. So when we put on weight, it's usually in the lower part of the face. Right. But what we do have is when we have a squarish face or a face that is wider at the base than it is at the eye, so the jaw, for instance, we have somebody who has what we call authoritative appearance. Right. So the wider the face and the squarer it is, the more authoritative the person is, the more confident they look again. So we do, as we put on a bit of weight, look like we've got a bit more confidence. But with somebody who is uh, trained to read people are looking at those physical markers, not looking beyond the actual uh, extra flesh that might be there. Can it have the effect that when the opposite to what I first proposed, that having heard what you've said about we're actually measuring across the eyes, when someone puts on weight around the cheeks, lower in the face, their eyes in proportion actually look closer together. They look the breadth looks smaller because of the the large face down the bottom. So do we sometimes judge those people as being less confident because of the weight they're carrying? Now, what we're actually looking at there is we're focusing on the eyes themselves. So we're seeing the width of the eyes from the inside corner to the outside corner, the hooks there. Right. And then we're taking that measurement and seeing whether that fits between the eyes. Okay. And so if the eyes look like they're wider apart, the width of the face is not going to make any changes there because we're not looking at the dimensions of the face. We're isolating down onto the eyes themselves. So, Alan, how much of this stuff do we do naturally? How how naturally will most of us look at eyebrows and, and see high eyebrows as someone who needs space or look at the width of the face and judge their confidence? Do we do those kind of things naturally? Are they part of the inbuilt human bias? It's innate. It's something that we've always done. Now, when you've actually looked at, uh, well, think of the movies you've gone to see. Think of the actors that have played in that. Have they looked like they fulfilled the part? You know, can you think of young, um, well, DiCaprio when he was a young fella, acting out the part of, say, uh, uh, Ulysses in Troy? You couldn't imagine it. You couldn't see him as a footballer. So we all look at everybody and we already make judgments every day. And we do, we've done that right back through uh, ancient times as well, far back as we can remember. And in fact, as far as being able to read people as young children, we're very good at it. We're able to look at faces, recognise, and we're able to pick up the energies, picking up the expressions, the body language, etc. because as a young child, it's all about survival. But as we grow older, because we've got all these other things going on, we've got school, we've got sports, we've got friends, etc. it's like a muscle. If you don't work it, it atrophies. It just drops away. Right. So that's what happens. So young children, very good at reading adults and what's going on around them. But as we get older, we lose the ability. I really describe myself more like a personal trainer. You think that, you know, you're reasonably fit. So if you've been uh, working out before and then say your, your lifestyle changes, you're sitting on the couch and everything else, you put on weight and you decide one day, I'm going to go and I'll get myself fit again. So you go to the gym, you get a personal trainer who helps you redevelop those muscles again. They'll say, well, I'm, that's all I'm doing with people when it comes to reading them. I show people what they already knew, but take away the biases that they may have developed in the meantime because there'll be people in your life that, say, may have done you wrong in the past. You'll see somebody who looks very similar and straight away you treat them the same way. That's interesting. And, and that person then picks up your vibes and what's going on 
and naturally responds back in the way that you expected them to. So you've created a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I do is come along and go, hey, let's see them as an individual, separate from your past. Let's look at the expressions, look, look at the body language, but let's look at the facial features as well and see them as an individual in their own right. So here's somebody who may remind you of somebody in the past who did you wrong, but now this person can end up being your best friend. You mentioned there that as a as a baby, we're really good at reading these expressions. I happen to have a five-day-old baby at my house now, my second son, and you've just got me wondering what he's seeing in me. We'll talk about that later when we get you to break down those photos I sent to you. But I imagine you said that we lose those. Is it? There's just so much more going on in our life as we get older. There, there's so much more for us to think about. So we lose that muscle, as you say, the muscle that was very strong in us as an infant because we had very little other information to go on. So we were just exercising that muscle. As we go through life, we have so much more stimulus that we're aware of. And you see in your role as someone comes in and reminds us of how to use those things naturally. That's a great description, mate. It's all very clear to me now. And and I think it's just got so much value. I, I love these five things that you've pointed out. Now, are they the main five or are there others that fall into that category of really easy for us lay people to pick up? Well, when it comes down to all the traits, really, or majority of them, they're all very easy to see. Well, what I'm always looking at is what stands out the most, what jumps off that person's face into my eyes the moment I see them. In some people, it could be a chin that's coming really forward. It could be a very wide chin. If it's very wide chin, it's somebody who likes to debate. They like to have meaty conversations. If the chin's coming forward, they're more likely to be more tenacious than other people. One of the things I noticed in your face straight away is before we even spoke, I knew you had a dry sense of humour. Right. Now, that particular one is the area they call the philtrum. It's the area underneath the base of the nose that comes down. It's that little groove section to the top of the lip. Now, yours is a very long one. That means somebody who's got a very dry sense of humour. So when you're happy, you can be joking and laughing and everything else. The person who's got the opposite trait to that may take things a little bit more personally because they may think that you're talking about them. They're a little bit more fussy. Okay, that's interesting. And and again, it leads me to ask, do you ever see someone who's got a dry sense of humour that doesn't have the same fulcrum as me? With the filter, what you'll find is that people have an ability to be able to laugh, etc. I've seen people with short ones, yes, they've got a bit of a dry sense of humour. But under pressure, they'll revert back to being a little bit more fussy. Revert to type. Yeah. So that's one of the things we always find is that we try and work outside of our particular uh, personality. If we're in a, in a career, for instance, when I worked for telecom, my background in uh, Myers-Briggs was what an INFP, introverted, intuitive with feeling and big picture. But the job I was working in was completely opposite, an extroverted sensing, thinking and judging. But it was because of the type of work I was doing in there. It wasn't in telephones. It was in the computer area, all the modems that we used to have. So all the data connections. So I had variety, which fitted my other personality type. So I was able to function in that. But when it came to, because I was an introvert, working with the public, I would then withdraw to get my energy back. Because it takes so much of your energy. That's right. So I can work outside of type, but under stress, I'll always go back to where I am. And that was one of the things, as I mentioned before, with the currency traders, when they were actually filling their profiles out, they were trying to second guess and thinking, well, what sort of uh, personality do I have to be yeah. to get to be a good trader? Yeah. And I said, well, under stress, and let's face it, trading is one of the most stressful things you'll ever do, you will always revert back to type 
So whatever you tried to be, now you yourself, and this is why you're losing money. So I need to know your personality style so I can educate you how to actually put plans in place so that when you fall back into your personality role that you're able to do well. My job is to keep in there long enough to make money. When we talk about emotional intelligence and those elements of being emotionally intelligent, one of them is self-awareness, being aware of yourself, and one of them is being aware of the things around you. So people that we describe as having high levels of emotional intelligence, are they simply good at reading these kind of facial features that you've just described to us? They're more attuned because of that emotional uh, awareness. People who are shut down, well, it's like being stressed. You don't notice what's going on around you. Right. So the more open you are, the more happy you are, the more in tune to things, of course you're going to read them more effectively because they're also not going to be putting on negative connotations on at the same time as well. Where does the work that you've described so far, the, those facial features, how does that intersect with body language? I know you do a lot of the work around body language as well. Well, the body language itself, just like the micro expressions on the face, they're unconscious uh, indicators of what the person's really feeling in the moment. They don't really tell me the person's personality. So you, your facial features can tell me one thing, that that's how your personality is structured, but right at the moment because of emotions that are going on, you're behaving slightly differently. So I therefore know when I look at your facial features, there's your personality, this is how you're behaving, something's going on because of the incongruencies. Ah, so they work really nicely together for someone with your right. level of knowledge. So the, That's right. the, the body language and the micro expressions tells you how I'm feeling right now, my state of emotion, whereas my facial features tell you my rock-solid personality. That's it. And your rock-solid personality doesn't change overnight. It can change over a period. So some of the features on your face, like the corner of the mouth turning down, that will happen if you frown a lot, if you're unhappy because the muscles at the bottom will get stronger and pull down and the muscles at the top will stretch to actually get that equal level. Then if I also miss, there's no little lines out the side of your eyes, those laughter lines as they call it, they tell me you've been laughing for a long period of time. But if the corner of your mouth is turned down, I know that recently there's been a lot of frowning, there's a lot of unhappiness, which could be a loss of a family member, you know, redundancy, something that's impacted on your life. So by looking at the traits together, I can understand what's been happening to you over a period of time. But then the body language and micro expressions, they tell me right now, as something is said or something happens, what you're feeling right in that moment. So those little tips that you've given us certainly make me feel a little bit better armed to read people and read their facial mm. features. They're very useful. You, of course, have a much deeper understanding than I will ever acquire. And that's led you towards some really interesting work, hasn't it? There's, there's that high-profile work that you do with TV and radio where you're known as the celebrity profiler, and then you've got the core of your business, which is doing profiles on people and organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about where your work takes you? Start off by telling us about the really, the really interesting stuff, the, the celebrity profiling. What, what do you do there? Well, where it came from on that one, I got a phone call from Channel 7, first of all, asking if I'd seen Julie Bishop roll her eyes in Parliament. So I hadn't seen it, so they sent me a quick clip. I had a look at it, rang them straight back and said, okay, this is what I'm seeing there. And they said, well, and they asked me more about what I did. And they said, can you come on air this afternoon? So they asked me then on air to also profile Kate Middleton. So we did that. Then from there, that came into radio calls to go on radio and doing similar things on radio where I would profile either the announcers or 
their, um, uh, some of their listeners sending in photographs and I would then profile the, uh, the listener from their photographs while the listener was on air. Right, so we so had immediate it. feedback. Great. So that feedback was there immediate. Then um, I had a call from, uh, what was it now, the Daily Mail in the UK and asked if I would profile The Bachelor, Sam Woods, and three of the ladies from the very first night. And they selected the ladies. So I profiled them and also made comments about him at the time in um, one of his traits was very focused on his career and right. his business. Mm-hmm. And they then came back to me another two times to profile him. And the last one was when he picked his last two ladies or from the last two ladies, which one he was going to pick. And his father had said to one of the girls that, yes, he had a lot of girlfriends in the past, but they'd all broken up because of his business. Right. So confirm that as well. Sam Woods. So uh, you were vindicated uh, on air. Yeah. So several weeks later and that with the final one, Dad uh, saying what I picked on the very first uh, instance (laughs) was accurate. Then there's been uh, Fox Sport calling me to profile, uh, what's his name now? Um, Robbie Farah. Farah and uh, Jason Taylor. And then uh, from there, um, why Bill Shorten isn't very popular. Yeah. But uh, that particular one, as I pointed out there, was yes, he was popular before with, with his, uh, where he sat before, but now with the new Prime Minister, it was a relationship between the two and how people saw the two differently. And that uh, came out into that. So that's where the celebrity side of it came out, which has been really good for getting the people's awareness of who I am and what I do out there. But it hasn't been the area that I really love to work in. So tell us about Kate Middleton. What did you decide about Kate Middleton? How did they ask you to read her? Well, she had a bit of an eye roll there as well. But it was what actually happened, she was in London, uh, sorry, uh, New York at the time. And she was at a charity event where she was wrapping uh, gifts for Christmas. And some woman walked, she was chatting next to the, to the woman next to her and somebody walked behind her, I think it was a supervisor, who uh, t- uh, made a comment about not talking. Oh, <laughs> and the, that was a brave one. Uh, but the, the role of the eye sort of looking as she turned her head around and they wanted to know whether that was similar to the one that Julie Bishop had had. Different situations altogether. The one how, in, uh, how so? Well, the one uh, when Joe Hockey was uh, talking, he was just being obnoxious. And Julie's uh, response when she rolled her eyes, it was very much put on for the whole audience to see. It was deliberate. Ah, so because she wanted everyone to see she didn't agree with it. It wasn't, it a, wasn't reflex. a reflex at all. It was a deliberate sort of thought through re- response. That's right. Now, was where uh, Kate Middleton's was a surprised uh, expression, could, wouldn't have been expecting that. Yeah. I don't think anyone would have expected it. I think the woman who actually said it might have been a bit shocked later on about herself having said it. I can't but believe I've just been look. reprimanded. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> That's it. So there was that sudden look of surprise, but then it was back to the conversation and everything. So she handled it quite well. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. So you've been doing some really interesting work doing that celebrity type profiling and I imagine that's a lot of fun and it gets you on TV and raises your profile and has given you that name, the celebrity profiler, but I know that that's not your bread and butter. Tell us about how you apply this on a a professional level. Well, training everything from school teachers, psychologists, psychoanalysts, through to parents on how to read their children through all levels of uh, business as well. 
It's wherever two people come into contact with each other, the skills can be used. So there's no limitation as to who I can actually teach. And there's pretty much no limitation to how well somebody can read other people just as well as I do as well. It's just practice. It's just getting a skill back that we had before. Someone had to teach me and the level I'm at now is because I've practiced it. So other people can learn it just as well. But when I looked at, I'll give you an example, there were some psychologists over in Florida who were working with children with autism. Now, by the time that they had profiled the child and built the rapport with the child, they'd lost so much of their time with the, with the uh, contract they had with the government. So they would lift a little bit of time to actually get the work done at the end. So they asked me about it. They said, well, if you can profile the child day one, how is that going to improve? They said, well, that gives us a lot more time to work with the child. They said, once we profile, does that mean we've got them? No, once you profile somebody, the next step is to test what you've read. So you will start to talk to the child, to talk to their traits, the way you know their tra those traits like to be spoken to. You will get immediate feedback in the body language and the micro-expressions to know whether you're on track. If you're not, then you can moderate it very quickly. So you build rapport very fast. Now you've got all this extra time to work with the, uh, the child. And they said, well, great, that's going to change things. I said, well, what about the parents? Some parents are parent who will be feeling that they've lost control and are upset and angry because of because somebody else has got to tell them what to do. There will be other parents who will be dying to uh, have people help them. So if you can read them as different, you behave and treat them differently. The ones who want everybody else to help them, you can say, look, we're going to do all this, but we just want you to do this little bit. So they're still involved in it, but it takes the pressure off them. Then you'll have the person, as I said, who feels like they've lost control. Look, we can do this bit, but we really need you to do all of this. And so that parent then feels they've got some control back into it again. So that's where I used it on that level. So that's such a great application. And I'm, I can only guess that that brings you a lot more personal and professional satisfaction than doing that really interesting, but fairly shallow kind of celebrity profiling on Channel 7. Is, is that true? Does that give, you know, when you see social workers have more time to work with a, a kid because mm. they've profiled them early rather than taking a week and a half to do an MBTI profile. Is, is that where your real satisfaction comes? It definitely is. There's one of the testimonials on my uh, website was three and a half years, it was recorded three and a half years after I did the work. And it was of a boy who at the time was six years old, had um, Asperger's, the school wanted to kick him out. His mother, because um, we were doing another event, she was running a singles group and I was doing an event called How to Avoid the Psychopath and Other Practical Dating Tips. And at the end of it, she said, well, look, can you profile my son? Now, he wouldn't sit down for me. So she took some photographs, sent me the photographs, I profiled him and gave her some advice on what she could take to the, back to the teachers. Now, because she worked single mum and she worked uh, managing hotels, she relied on the after schools care as well as the teachers. And so she played one against the other. She told the school that the after schools care were going to do this and the after schools care that the teachers were doing it. So they took it on board. Three and a half years later, she's done another testimonial for me where he's no longer seeing a psychologist. He's gone well beyond the point of whether they were worried about him not being able to stay in the class, now doing presentations in front of the class, and his whole life had changed. Fantastic. So that's the sort of stuff. And when I hear those stories, that's what makes it all worthwhile for me. Now, those tips that you gave me before that I, I keep on raving about, because they are fantastic and simple, and I can imagine myself applying them. But the fact is that I'm not used to doing it like you. You say that you can't switch it off because, and why would you want to? Because it's such a great skill. Whereas for me, 
I will always be a battler at best. I imagine that I'm going to have trouble remembering to do this. If I go into a meeting, whether it's social or business, I'm going to have trouble remembering to do these things. And I might think of it afterwards if things don't go well, or I might think Mm. of it afterwards if things do go well. I think, oh, it's because they've got low eyebrows. They were happy for me Mm. to be in that space. Have you got any tips for those of us who are wanting to try these things out, but know that we'll probably forget to do it when it matters? Well, one of the things I actually did was I wanted people to be able to learn easily because nothing should be hard. Everything should be very simple to do. And in fact, I had a school in San Marino come to me, year 12 students who were reading at elementary school level. They were Latino and they're trying to teach them English. And she said, well, look, the only thing that interested them was an article that she put in front of them on reading people by Paul Ekman on the micro expressions. She found me, she said, your stuff is very easy to follow. She said, but what can I do? I said, well, you've found the things that motivates them is being able to read each other. What I have are two mobile apps that look at seven traits, a couple of those that we already spoke about, where they can look at the other person and they actually have to read the instructions because the app doesn't do the work for them, but they actually read the instructions, they do the profile, then they get a report at the end of it that tells them about that person's traits. Now, that's the first app. The second app, you profile yourself and you profile the other person and it tells you how to talk to their traits, change the way you like to be spoken to to the way they like to be spoken to. So now they actually had to read that instruction, do the profile, read the report, and in the second one, then sit down with the other person, the other kid they profiled, and practice it. Now you're working on improved communications and anti-bullying. So they've got that uh, uh, app to do that. So that's something that people can actually grab and uh, have a bit of a play with. And that's wonderful, but it's not going to help you on those chance meetings or or one-off interactions where we do try and implement these little tips that you've given us. But I guess using the app and getting in the habit of using the app when it's appropriate will get you better at applying those tips. That's it. And if you've got, you just worked on those seven, for instance, it won't take you long before you'll remember those very well. Right. And so then you're out there and you meet people and you see that and away you go. Because when you look at all this stuff, it goes into every application, even the dating scenes. Yeah. We're looking at making the dating site safer for people. You're going to do a presentation to somebody. Go to their LinkedIn page, go to their um, Facebook page or their websites, wherever there's a photograph, and work out what their personality is and how to talk to that personality before you even walk through the door. So there is no chance meetings in that case. You've preempted everything. As they say, champions are made in uh, preparation, not in competition. Wonderful advice. All right, Alan. Now, as I said at the beginning of the episode, I sent you five photos. I'm going to put those on the website for people to have a look at. They they look a little bit like uh, criminal photos, actually, don't they? They're (laughs) front on and side on. I felt like I should have been holding up a sign. Now, from those photos, what can you tell about me? Tell me about me, Alan. Okay. Well, when we looked at the photos, as I said, the things that stood out uh, very quickly were the exposed eyelids, for instance, and knowing that as soon as I walk up to you and that, just give you the big picture. Also, the fact that your eyelid, your eyes and the eyebrows, they're fairly close together. They're not as close as, say, George Clooney's, but they are. there's a reasonable closeness there. So you're more affable than anything else. So they're so very approachable and friendly. Approachable. Oh, that's so nice. when I walk up to you, yes, I'm going to walk up with a slightly bent arm. I don't need to have a lot of space. The only time I worry about somebody who's affable is if they're very tall, they want to stand very close to me, 
And being short myself, the only trait I can usually see is their nostrils <laughs> as I'm looking up. But I know that you're going to stand close to me. If you're not standing close to me, I know something's going on. Right. That you, you've already got a dislike or whatever or you've been told something or a little bit of a fear or whatever. So I expect you to stand close. I know that you're very laid back, those wider set eyes. Okay. At the same time, I also know that when you're working with people, you're really a team player as well. You oh. like working within the teams. Some people who, uh, you know, they'll be bosses. They don't work within the team. They like to push it or pull the team. But you're very much somebody who gets on well with people. What tells you that? What part of my facial This features? is in the actual shape of the nose itself. This is in the flare of the nostrils. Right. So yours are towards the pinched. They're not flaring out. Now, by the way, one of the questions that people will actually be thinking right now is some of the traits may be ethically based. Like the flare of the nostrils, you'll find that more in a um, – uh, an islander or an indigenous person. What I'm looking at there is a range. So I always add a certain percentage for different uh, nationalities, whether the eyes are more sunken into the uh, like deeper set or whether they're more forward, you'll find that Asians, for instance, the eyes are further forward. So I make an allowance for that when I do that read. So I'm always looking at those sort of things. But as I said before, that um, large uh, filter in the area under the nose Straight away I knew as soon as we started talking, it was going to be a light, casual conversation, no pressure, no hassle at all, maybe a bit of uh, joking and everything going on. Right, so, great. Well, that's all positive. And, you know, I relate to everything that you're saying about me so far. There's nothing that you've said that I kind of don't agree with. So I'm happy to keep hearing it. But is it a little bit like reading someone's stars? that if you say things broadly and if you say complimentary things, people are going to go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's me, that's me. Yeah, well, what I then do is I always look at the upside and the downside of the traits. So as I said, yes, the dry sense of humour. The downside of that trait is that when you're stressed, it can come across as sarcastic. Right. It can come as quite cutting. Mm -hmm. So I know straight away that that's there. At the same time, I think I've uh, pointed out you have aesthetic appreciation, which means you feel things inside. It's more about the, the flow of things. It's less than, uh, where some people are very expressive outward, you'll keep your feelings in. The downside of that trade is you keep everything in and keep it to a point to where it finally blows up and explodes. So where somebody who has dramatic appreciation who would be gifted as a presenter, very up on stage, very uh, theatrical and everything else, they also do stress the same way. So the, to everybody who's aesthetic appreciation, those dramatic appreciation people seem like drama queens. Right. They're up, down, up, down, up, down. So they're always, mood seems to be changing all the time and they're exhausting to the ascetic person. The ascetic person always seems to be laid back on the surface, yep. but underneath they can be building up. They are more likely to be the ones who get depression. Right. Who go, I need to watch out for that. Yeah. So when you have a partner, for instance, and uh, if you're both ascetic appreciation, you both keep things in. They build up to a point when there's finally an explosion, which is long bit after where you should have been talking about in the first place. So I can say to you, yes, you're going to look like you're very laid back and comfortable and relaxed to most people, but when things are starting to build up, long before they get to that point where you just can't control it anymore, that's when you need to be expressing it and sharing it with your partner right. because that's what actually increases the bond with you and your partner. So it's a lot of people who go into depression and go into marriage breakups, suicidal and everything else. If they recognise that in the earlier stage, their whole relationship would have been stronger, their emotional state would have been better. And so if you then have a partner who is very yeah, dramatic appreciation or very ascetic, there is a variation between the two of you. 
So how do you talk to the other one's traits? So do you often have married couples will send you photos of each person in the same way that I sent you my five photos and you'll be able to read both people in the relationship and talk about the way that they might interact better and connect a little bit better. That's exactly right because that's what I did with the Sam Woods um, profiles that I did on uh, for the uh, newspaper. It's a case of, well, I've got one gentleman there and his partner. I profiled both of them. They read their reports. Both had a bit of a giggle about the fact that I hit the nail on the head with their personal traits. Then they swapped their reports and they read through and they realised where they were similar and they were the traits they get on really well. That's right. where the soulmate image starts to come through. Getcha. But where the spice in the relationship was is in the ones where the traits are opposite. Yeah. And that's where the excitement is. But over a period of time, that excitement starts to diminish and it becomes hard work. But if you know how to talk to the other one's traits, you can keep the spice in your relationship, but at the same time, have uh, maintenance that's very easy to maintain in that relationship. So the relationship stays strong, but you've still got the spice. Fantastic. What a great application. Now, before I move on to my very last question, are there any other really obvious traits that stand out to you that people with these skills would be reading in me when they meet me? Well, the things I, well one of the things is you like to be in charge too, don't you? You like to be in control. <laughs> I don't know about that. I read that in the report. I'm not sure about that one. What makes you think that? This is usually in the shape of the years, how much they stand out. And usually when I'm talking about that, I push my back against my head as well. <laughs> I do have big floppy ears, there's no doubt. So it's, but you're also um, you're good at hearing things as well because of the, the angle of the ears. Really? So hearing conversations, etc. And as we've talked earlier on about the sound qualities and things, right. you pick that up very quickly as well. All right, okay. All right, that's very interesting. Now, according to your system then, does this mean that identical twins are the same personality? No, because they're going to have, well, as I say, we're the results of all of our experiences. So both those two people, even though they're identical, they're going to have different experiences. There's going to be some variations. A good mate of mine, he's, uh, he's a twin, and when he's uh, younger, when he, his brother, nobody can tell them apart. But by God, today you can yeah. Because of the one went into blue collar, one went into the construction. Right. One more out, different people around them, et cetera. Yeah. And you can see that in their features as well. The one that was more robust, more into the uh, environment, has got that appearance of being more robust as well. So life and shapes the their features as time goes on. So you'll have those ones that are passed down from your parents in the genes. At the same time, you will then have those that you develop in response to your environment. Oh, so. Look. Alan, this is incredibly interesting stuff. We're going to have to wrap it up, but I am going to put on the website all the places people can find you and find your work. That will be in the podcast page for this episode, so they'll be able to find you there. Now, before we go, though, I always ask my guests the same four questions to finish up. So are you ready? I think you'll know what I'm getting at here. Alan, tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to. Is it a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends? I think I might have answered that one earlier. It's going to be pulled back from the crowd and it's going to be an intimate party. It's where I can actually sit down with friends and talk about things in depth. Because you are an introvert and you told us that before. What about this one? Are you more likely to be caught daydreaming or getting bogged down in the detail? Oh, daydreaming. <laughs> <laughs> so you're an I-N. You, you told us yeah. that earlier. What about this one? Do you make decisions based on emotion or are you a slave to rational thought? Emotion. <laughs> and very last one, you're going on a road trip. 
Do you like to book the hotels, plan the route, know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? Well, I actually went to Spain, booked my flight, had no accommodation sorted out or anything else, landed and went, okay, where to next? So, so I do no planning at all. <laughs> so you're a great big P. That's it. Fantastic. Alan Stevens, thank you so much for your time. I've found it really interesting and I hope I remember to apply some of these great tips that you've given us because it will make meeting new people and communicating with new people so much easier. Thank you very much. And that was Alan Stevens, expert in reading facial features, micro expressions and body language. I love the five tips he gave us for reading the facial features of the people we meet. High eyebrows means they want more space. Close eyes tells us we're dealing with a serious character. Eyelids tells us whether they want the big picture or they want detail. The distance between the tip of the nose and the chin reveals if we make decisions quickly or slowly. And the width of the face reveals confidence. And I love the way Alan gave us some insight into not only what it all means, but how we can apply that information in genuinely useful ways. I'd love to hear how you go applying these tips on reading character. Find Team Guru on Facebook or jump on the podcast page for this episode and leave a comment. You'll find it all on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. And it's there where, as always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode and some links to where you can learn more about today's guest. And keep an eye out for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. Thank you.